0: Students sit in a room and basically regurgitate in a reasonably inauthentic way. You know, most of mm. our working lives, we've not been asked to sit in an exam room and regurgitate stuff. We tend to be working on projects. We tend to be working with diverse teams. We tend to be focusing on creativity, collaboration, critical thinking, and doing that in a very um, social way.
1: Welcome to Insert Human. I'm Chris Colbert. As the former managing director of the Harvard Innovation Lab, I realized many things. And one of the things I realized is that the pace of technology-driven change is faster, far faster than most organizations and most people's ability to change. That gap equals risk, vulnerability, and eventually long-term viability. And it's a particularly troubling gap in the three sectors that underpin modern society, banking, education, and healthcare. It's the biggest existential threat they have, and by extension, we have. Closing the gap requires transformation, and transformation requires a much better understanding of ourselves, because at the end of the day, all transformation is human transformation. That's why I created Insert Human, a weekly conversation with brilliant people about better understanding us, and in doing so, shrinking the gap and increasing the chances of a better outcome for all. Before we dive into today's episode, an offer to all the listeners who are leading some sort of transformation effort. I've learned that the key to a successful transformation, organizations big or small, begins with adopting seven critical habits. And while most of the leaders I've met have nailed some, rarely have I seen any honed to an innate, really effective level. To find out how you're doing with the seven habits, you can get my guide, The Seven Habits of Highly Transformative Leaders at chriscolbert.com. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Welcome to another episode of Insert Human. And with me today is Kevin House, who whose title is Education Futures Architect, which is a pretty damn cool title if I say so myself. As importantly, Kevin is a friend of mine and he and I do some work with an organization called School of Humanity. We might talk about that a little bit later, but he is employed by an organization called Education in Motion, which is a global education company that aspires to be a leader in pioneering education for a sustainable future. I know a little bit about EIM and I would say their aspiration is, is coming to life. Uh, they, they've got a consortium of schools that they've either built or manage or operate or, or, or help that are really sort of turning the whole education thing upside down. And we're going to talk about that a little as well. So, Kevin, welcome to the show. And good morning. Kevin is in Singapore, so I believe it's 7.23 a.m. there. So thank you for joining us.
0: <laughs> it is indeed. Good morning to you.
1: Good morning. So let's start with the the, the big one. Um, as you know, I'm a big fan of systems, and I have this thing about systems, which is systems can only be successful if they're delivering on the desired output, or call it the desired intention of the system. So as we think about education as a system, what's your take on what the the intention was? maybe has been within the traditional version of the system versus what the intention or desired output needs to be given the state of the world and given the trend line of the world that we're in. Like, let's start yeah. there. That's a big, I know, we we'll probably take like the next seven hours to answer that question. But.
0: Yeah, I, I'll just clear the day. Yeah, look, I think um, with, as with many systems, we've created as a species uh, they're never really done intentionally so they become a composite of different drivers and so what i'll do is maybe look over my shoulder at the history around assessment i mean just to be clear for me education is really good at using generic terms so when we talk about education um We might encompass a range of different stakeholders. We might also encompass uh, a range of different age ranges. And what we're really focusing on, what I'm going to focus on today is really compulsory education and specifically what I call the sharp end of compulsory education. And that's really high schooling. So historically what's evolved definitely in the Anglo-Saxon English speaking world um, are really two systems I think Um, at high school or pre-tertiary. And one is a transcript-based model. In North America, there's a Carnegie, largely a a Carnegie high school model Mm -hmm. based around seat time. In Europe um, and many other parts of the world, there's a qualifications-driven environment where, although they talk about hours of instruction, which is not necessarily dissimilar to seat time, what you've got are different levers and drivers there because they use a qualifications network um, or, rather than a, you know, the high school transcript is not necessarily given or awarded by the institution. It's usually done by an external body, whether it's the Ministry of Education through state uh, qualifications or whether it's through an external body like uh, International Baccalaureate or, or the A-Levels or College Board APs, for example. Um, and, and that leads to some different specifics in terms of how it plays out in the curriculum and the learning experience for the learner. But fundamentally, I think both systems have created an environment where we've kind of in the last 30 years got to a point where I think we've economized the knowledge industry. So we kind of use the metrics, the analogies that you'd see with things like, um the FTSE index, where you've got, um, when you're trading in stocks, you've got different stocks trading at different things and they're they're almost league tabled. And what we're seeing in education now and definitely in university education as well is a league tabling, which really has created a a false kind of economization of knowledge industry. Mm -hmm. And I think the high school piece has fed into that much of the design was really a 19th century, as I say, composite of different things. Obviously, at that point in time with growing industrialization, there needed to be a, a kind of benchmark of compulsory education in different contexts to make sure that we had people who could move to urban environments and fulfil obligations in a, in a growing industrial landscape.
2: Mm.
0: Of course, now in the 21st century, I think, much of the narrative globally is around future skills and lifelong learning. And of course, the curricula that evolved over the last couple of hundred years doesn't necessarily have a, the balance correct in those more durable soft skill areas. And mm-hmm. I think because it focuses on those narrow academics that evolved as a kind of content and knowledge landscape in the industrial period. So I think we're still living with that legacy.
1: Well, and and that's such an erudite way of explaining it, you know, my Luddite way of, of trying to capture it as a parent. So, you know, I have three kids, as you know, that have all gone through the system and I obviously went through the system and it felt to me and still feels to me like much of the traditional system is a, is a box checking function that you, you go to school or your child goes to school and you check the boxes that that are attached to each grade. Each grade is a collection of boxes. And then you check them. And at the end, if you have checked enough boxes, you get you get the big box called the diploma. <laughs> and that diploma yep. is what you carry to the next stage, university. And then when you, and the same thing happens in university, you call it credits instead of boxes. But at the end of that, you, you graduate with the box, you then present to the employer and say, look, employer, inside my box are all the little boxes and they are all checked. Like yeah. that's that's how it seems.
0: Yeah, you're right. I mean, look, um, as I said, using the industrial analogy, I think Ken Robinson talks about uh, the fact that we batch learners into cohorts, kind of like a date of manufacture, right? So you, mm-hmm. the boxes are all ticked, you get your metaphorical stamp on the forehead and you are pushed out into the world. Oftentimes with probably not the fully well-rounded set of skills that you'd like to have, so you spend your twenties trying to navigate the shit show that is, you know, early early adult life, mm-hmm. because not necessarily being given those skills in um, in in formal education or compulsory education. So I think um, one of the books I read recently that had quite an impact on me, not necessarily because of that, the argument that it was being posed, but the model. It was by uh, Hermann Taneja, it's called Unscaled, and he looks at healthcare, financial services, and education. And his argument fundamentally is that really the 20th century was about scale. So we created economies of scale within those institutional practices. So, you know, massive um, banking systems, lots of centralization, even with a global footprint massive hospitals to try and create efficiencies of scale and obviously um, massive schools to create efficiencies of scale and they all of them try to be all things to all people right so they're, they're basically trying to put in one box as it were all the different solutions for that particular the scope of that particular industry the argument really is that with technology and a lot more access to things like cloud-based services, machine learning, um, IA, and where that may take us in the next 10, 20 years. We have a, a great opportunity to unscale, as he calls it, many of these core service areas in life. Mm-hmm. And I think specifically that resonated for me with some of the projects I know you and I are involved with around how could we unscale education? So that if I think about some of the schools I've worked with over the years, Um, they fundamentally try to be all things to all learners, right? Mm -hmm. So you come to a campus and you've got your sport, you've got your academics, you may have some counselling, you may have some guidance towards career or university. Um, And fundamentally, everyone's batched, everyone's, even though we have narratives around differentiation and these days personalization, I think the reality in a standardized industrial model is that those are nuances rather than authentic. Mm -hmm. And what we really need to look now at is what could we do to create alternative forms of education that still deliver on some of the core knowledge and skills areas that have always been there but also add to that some of the durable and soft skill areas, but deliver it with a learning experience which has more diversity in it. So how can mm-hmm. we unscale that industrial model? And mm-hmm. I think some of the things we're playing with is trying to do that.
1: And then as you, as you seek, and I'm, I wrote down that book, the book for everybody is Unscaled, and um, yeah, I look forward to reading it. As, as you seek to unscale, or as the industry seeks to unscale itself, And when you were talking about sort of the industrial impact on on these these industries, I thought, oh my God, like the military industrial complex, there's a healthcare industrial complex and an education industrial complex, like that's kind of what we allowed to unfold. But as you seek to unscale them, how does that impact how you measure their proficiency either at a macro level, at a systems level, or within the context of a student's journey because again i go back to this box checking or box ticking you know the, the 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 traditional model is here's the test pass the test you check the box yeah and and you know, it really kind of almost binary you either did or didn't how do you start thinking about assessment in an unscaled environment and a and frankly a far more complex environment
0: yeah so i mean that's one of the things really with the, the last couple of years i've been working on concept high school models and forever and a day, education is always talking about revision of curriculum and to some degree, revision of pedagogies. And for me, that, that that's just a wheel that keeps spinning because fundamentally, if the end game is still leveraging the credential cartel, as I think of it, which is, you know, College Board AP, external examinations, international baccalaureate, IB diploma examinations in the UK, they have A level examinations in Germany, they've got the Abitur examinations or the French baccalaureate. You know, you've got these monolithic month in may month in june or month in january depending on your time zone where students sit in a room and basically regurgitate in a reasonably inauthentic way you know most of Mm -hmm. our working lives we've not been asked to sit in an exam room and regurgitate stuff we tend to be working on projects we tend to be working with diverse teams we tend to be focusing on creativity collaboration critical thinking and doing that in a very um, social way. So the biggest problem I said was that we've got to figure out what can we do to create alternative ways of evidencing learning. And I and I use the term evidencing learning specifically as a strategic move away from the concept of assessment.
2: Mm. I
0: think whatever our intentions were, and I think they were genuine and authentic and, and good intentions way back when, but The examination is a product of that idea of trying to move to scale and create economic efficiencies, right? Right, right. And what happened really with that is that we created an environment which completely influences both the pedagogies of high school and the curriculum journey of high school. Um, As an example, I think some of the modelling we've been doing, if you move to more towards competency or literacy environments with um, evidencing of learning through knowledge artifacts and largely driven by project-based approaches, I think you can create environments where, because you're not having to teach students repeatedly over the four years how to take the tests, I think you, over those four years, buy back maybe 15, 20% of the curriculum time. In that time, you can take students further. <laughs> There's no reason why you can't, for those that want to uh, and can, move students beyond those summative uh, benchmarks that exist in, in grade 12.
1: Is this, Kevin, is this, is this why in the United States more and more universities are, are dropping the SAT, the standardized test requirement? Well,
0: I think because we've created such incredible efficiencies... And, you know, don't get me wrong, one of the big elephants in the room in education, when you talk about the purpose of education, is the discourse around public education and the discourse around private education. And that's a that's a difficult landscape, right, because that involves those that can purchase private education and those that can't also involves the socioeconomic groups, uh, the different Parties in that come from. And mm-hmm. I would argue it the purpose of education in those contexts um, becomes a muddied environment with different drivers working for different stakeholders. But but fundamentally, um one of the things we want to try and look at was well, what what could we do to try and rethink what the assessment paradigm looks like? So we shifted to evidencing of learning, mm-hmm. thinking about well, what kinds of things can students then. Dem- Offer to demonstrate that they know stuff or they have the skills to do stuff.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So that makes a more agentic environment. So it's you, the learner, offering up evidence. And wherever possible, there can be a range of different evidences as opposed to a standardized, you know, do a paper for one hour, 30 minutes.
1: And can you do that efficiently if I'm a teacher and I have a class of 30 students? The, as you said, the beauty of the traditional model is it scales. I can send it I can hand out 30 tests. They come back. I can grade them. If they're multiple choice, even better, I can absolutely quantify how well you did. Like how do how do, how do you sort of create how do you find that sweet spot of a, a, a more or a more substantive assessment and also uh, an efficient process to support it? You know, like is that possible?
0: I think there are different tools that are emerging. So there's certain companies that are playing around with taking some of the more content heavy disciplines that we all know and love. Things like natural sciences and um, mathematics, for example. At those sort of, at the high school end where really the amount of genuine, authentic inquiry you're doing in those subjects is probably relatively limited, right? Uh, And and some listeners might disagree with that, but I would argue that a lot of the authentic scientific inquiry that takes place in high schooling is often pretty heavily scaffolded. um, Because really what you're doing is trying to create the building box around content knowledge and and the skills attached to that to a large degree. And, And there are tools now that are creating quite authentic partnerships between both, let's say, an expert facilitator or teacher. Um, And the machine learning itself to offer formative feedback to the students almost immediately using a range of different techniques, because much of that content knowledge development is quite closed in Mm. terms of the kinds of questions you could ask, you could use multiple choice, you could use, you know, relatively short answers and and creating the algorithms and machine learning analytics is, is potentially Doable there, It's being done quite successfully with a few companies that we've been looking at. The challenge is more in the, I would say, the qualitative areas around assessment. So, you know, where students are writing more open-ended responses, lengthy responses, essays being a classic example. But even there, uh, Steve Jordan's is working on a, a platform called Peer Scholar at University of Toronto. And he's done a lot, he's a psychologist, done a lot of research around looking at peer evaluation, really, and one of the interesting things that they've discovered there is that if you create a framework around teaching students how to give feedback and how to receive feedback around these longer qualitative knowledge artefacts, there's a, quite a strong correlation with quite a low number of peers, right, between the expert assessor, if you like, the professor or the educator or facilitator and the peers. So as few as five or six peers. So if you wrote an essay, put it into Peer Scholar, me and five other colleagues from your class, having been walked through how to do the evaluative work, Mm -hmm. give you feedback, the correlation and the machine can pull together those correlations between what we're saying about the strengths and weaknesses and developmental areas of that work and what an expert assessor might say are very, very similar. Now, the expert assessor might be slightly more skewed toward um, being a bit more conservative if you were Mm -hmm. to use rubrics for Mm -hmm. grading that work. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: But in a formative space, you can create environments with, with a tool like Peer Scholar where we could be working together on extensive qualitative pieces of work and offering formative feedback which is developmentally helping students build their skill sets and it might limit the amount of interaction that needs to be stewarded mm-hmm. or you know shepherded by an expert assessor so you know let's say you know in a semester we might have Five or six, very similar kind of knowledge artifacts, let's say essays, for example. Maybe four or five of those, we use peer assessment to give each other a steer on where we're going. And it's only the final one that probably gets assessed by an expert evaluator because you're already developing skills and the correlations there seem quite strong. I think that um, offers a beginning of what it could look like in the future to to use machine environments to create potentially more qualitative feedback. Um, so I think we are moving in the right direction. So really what you can look at is a world in which you'd have longitudinal data through things like the example I gave you around the mathematics and the science maybe. Mm-hmm. So really what you're looking for is patterns over time over those four years. Um, you might have peer evaluation you might have self-evaluation again if that's steered appropriately you'll see growth over time again a radical another really, idea uh like, well another really I mean, cool you know laura and derek cabrera at um, cornell have developed uh, what they call the stmi so systems thinking and metacognition inventory and that's an metric which you can go back to and revisit over time and that as a as a as a reflective prompt Allows you to see development yourself, and then of course the expert evaluation. So you've got four data points potentially right. to start drawing on right. over four years, and if you've got the kind of data reservoir that can can host this and mine it appropriately, I think it takes away the potential emphasis to have to game everything on a regurgitative regime that takes place for one month at the end of your four-year journey.
1: Right, right, right. I have to ask a question, which I'll maybe maybe you know. Um, overly simplified, but as an architect, I mean, you're a future a future to architect, education future to architect. Do you think about which which drives what? Does assessment sort of how you think about assessment inform pedagogy and curriculum, or does pedagogy and curriculum? I'm talking about in the progressive space, you know the the, yeah. the 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 innovation space in education at every level, like which. We're chicken or ag or like how how do those two things
0: yeah look i mean go, it goes back to what i was saying earlier about i think in education we've talked we talk a lot about curriculum review shifting pedagogies you know from mimetic and didactic through to constructivism or connectivism um and, you know, often we get into quite evangelical camps, you know, constructivism, good, didactic, bad. I mean, the reality is, dependent on what you're learning, with whom you're learning, in what context you're learning, ideally, like Bill Cope, Mary Kazlancis would say out of University of Illinois, you use a reflexive toolkit of pedagogy. So as an expert practitioner, with the learners that you're working with, you would use a different range of pedagogies. I think it's the same with curriculum. I think based on context, what you're trying to do, you might leverage particular pedagogies for a particular curriculum approach at particular moments in time, particularly if you're building blocks of content knowledge to allow for authentic inquiry, for example, whereas in in the inquiry itself, you might be leveraging uh, curriculum environments that allow for more authentic experiential environments like you know, provocational or project-based learning, challenge-based learning and the like. So I, the the problem I have is always, with high school in particular, the end game is always steered by whatever that gatekeeper assessment is, Mm. right? And there's no, and that's why for me, a lot of the work I've been doing in the last couple of years is saying, well, how can we reinvent that? And I think things like micro-credentials, for example, The whole landscape of things like, and I can talk to it more in a moment, but things like NFTs, badges, and verified and certified micro-credentialing, and digital wallets and where that's going in the next 10 years. I think many nation states will move to digital wallets for various forms of um, digitized identity. So that Mm -hmm. could be your taxation, your medical records, but also your credentialing from school and beyond
1: professional so, cursory credentialing. Let me, just, let me just stop you there for a second. So in the United States, the way it has traditionally worked, the system I went through, my kids went through, they went to high school, they took tests, maybe they wrote some essays, they got grades, but they got sufficient grades, they graduated from high school and they walked out, the credential they walked out with was a diploma and a transcript. And the transcript simply indicated what classes they had taken what grades they had gotten what's what what is this micro credentialing digital are you talking about a wholly different set of of assets that those the student walks walks forward with is that is that what's going on yeah
0: i mean fundamentally yes but if you think about the projects a couple of projects i'm working on so education in motion has a group of schools called green school And we're looking at reinventing aspects of the high school um, diploma for them. And the work parallels and dovetails really nicely with the work that you and I are doing with Raya um, and the team at School of Humanity. Uh, You know, you've got to if you're going to try and create new credential capital and I use kind of faux currencies and blockchain currencies is quite a nice analogy, because really, if you think about it, what does education give you? It gives you credential capital that you then go out and spend, or it has value and you can right. use it and leverage it in different institutional contexts, whether it's higher education, whether it's the world of work, right? And there's all kinds of social capital attached to that as well. So fundamentally, creating a new currency, is a bit like Bitcoin back in the day, right?
1: Back in the day well, of Bitcoin, that's,
0: that's not going anywhere. <laughs> no one understands it, but of course now, for wrong or for right, it is starting to make a footprint. And of course, even there though are, no
1: one understands it,
0: yeah. And if you look at an interesting, you know, to to extend the analogy, if you look at the history around faux currencies and the development of mint and the development of currency in different nation states back in the sort of fifteenth, sixteenth century in Europe, you you you've got lots of analogies there that you can draw out with the way we've created the pre-tertiary and tertiary landscapes around credentialing right mm-hmm. because effectively think about your ivy leagues and your oxbridges they've got they've got the gold currency right that everyone wants but no one can you know very few can get it and so For me, in education, those are not disruptive spaces. I know you and I have talked about this with Harvard and so Mm. forth before. These guys, and I'm afraid it often is guys, unfortunately, Mm -hmm. but they sit at the top table. They have very little appetite for disruption because disruption means basically threats to brand value, USP, the rest of it, Right. right? Right. So you've got to try and work with tertiary partners to try and move the narrative. So for me, um, at the moment, we have to have a transcript. You can't deny that. So with School of Humanity, Green School, we're looking at having we're looking at Mastery Transcript Consortium. So a big shout out to those guys. They're working their way around North America largely, though they've got a small footprint in Australia to create a non GPA transcript environment, right, so they're trying to move away from the simplification of numerical value, which largely really exists, because we don't fund university admissions departments well enough, so that most university admissions are decided in something like between three and five minutes of someone looking at basically your transcript and the school profile and making a call. Right. I mean, I know they it's were, not,
1: they're trying to scale, right. They're just, yes, they're just trying to the
0: scale uh, problem. So at the moment we're saying, okay, with school, of humanity, green school, we're going to use MTC because it's a transcript, even though it's not using a GPA though, you could put one in if you wanted. It's still, it's a, it's a currency that's still understandable when you go and try and spend it. But alongside that, we're trying to work with um, the company we wanna work with is a a call out to Convergence Tech, really cool guys based in Canada and now in Australia. We're doing a lot of work around loads of different technologies from uh, NFTs to digital credentialing to digital medical records, uh, even to digital taxation environments and leveraging sustainable blockchain technologies to try and make this happen, because Mm they are working with governments, individual bodies like us, because they realize that that digitization of of this kind of data is happening. So in parallel with the MTC transcript, the traditional transcript, we're trying to develop a digital wallet. And the digital wallet would basically have in it anything from, uh, you know, Simple NFT, so students, so if you and I are in the same cohort, we can create NFTs. And these these are fun, pretty light touch. There's no content attached to them, but we can design and have a catalog or library of NFTs. And if you and I did a collaborative project and I thought you were really creative, I can just throw an NFT and you stick it in your wallet. It doesn't mean much, but what it's doing is it's giving you an understanding of the functionality of how to transactionally use things like NFTs, but also use the wallet itself. So let me just,
1: just, again, simple-minded take. The idea of, call it 21st century credentialing within the school system is the, and this maybe includes some of what the mastery transcript uh, thing does, is instead of a child being, or child, or a learner being represented by a, a, Grade point average and a list of courses. They are represented more dimensionally with examples of their project work, examples of badges that maybe a a, a peer student has given them. Like like in my vi- in my visualization of what you're describing, it's it's a it's it has a range. The wallet or the the carrier has a range of different assets that reflect the accomplishment and the capacity of the student. Is that, is that close?
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That's, that's the right space. And think about it longitudinally as well, right? Because things like NFTs and badges, they're pretty low, if you like, low value, right? Mm -hmm. But if you look at it longitudinally, so a student Mm. accumulates a large number of NFTs or badges from the community. So that could be from parents. It could be from Uh, It could be from the Mm -hmm. faculty. Mm -hmm. It could be from peers. You're going to get quite a rich picture of a person. And conversely, if they didn't really pick up many, now you would hope they wouldn't get to the end of a four-year journey and no one's had some mentoring conversations about that. And again, I don't want to create a regime where we're all running around like looking for likes. It's not that kind of environment. That's always always a danger, right?
1: Do you remember... This is probably uh, ten plus years ago. This and it might have been only in in the U.S. A, a company created something called your Clout Score. You ever you familiar yeah, with? That? So Clout, but it was spelled K L O U T. And the whole idea was to measure your presence on all the different social media platforms and how many times you spoke. And it was this, and and you got a number. I mean, sort of, you know. <laughs> Yeah. So you don't want to be in that game of hey, no. hey 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 Kev, can you give me a can you give me a badge, man? I'm I'm a little short no. on badges this month, right?
0: Yeah, and I think um, you know I go back to the idea that longitudinally, you know, you you're going to have to be a pretty hyper focused individual to try and game it consecutively across multiple data points and stakeholders yeah. over four years arguably if you manage to do that you,
1: you should be you should be <laughs> a, whatever yeah yeah
0: you're either, there's something either sociopathically uh worrying or uh right. you're an incredibly focused individual but the other piece to this is of course i'm talking about the light end the heavier end is around the verifiable micro credentials and the attack the the I think the excitement for me around that is that you have a dashboard in your digital wallet. It shows, in a, if you think about a spider graph, it shows areas around mm-hmm. traits, dispositional growth, uh, competencies or, or we call them literacies or, or some call them mastery areas um, and, and specific 21st century skill areas. And, you can see where a person is generally on that dashboard, but you could also look into the specifics and you can get quite forensic and drill right down to -hmm. looking at what knowledge artifacts were used um, as evidence of learning to accumulate that digital credential, what rubrics were used, what was the validation process, right? All of that can be hosted in the data. And that is far richer than any transcript.
1: Far richer. And And do do you envision that or, do you envision that extending into, into adulthood? And is that a life, you know, we we you hear more and more, and you and I talk a lot about lifelong learning. Does the idea of a digital wallet and this representation of one's knowledge, capacity, accomplishments become a societal norm, not just attached to education specifically? Is that yeah. a, is that a pop, you know part of the part I of think- the picture?
0: Look, I think it, it's a it's a classic example of where we're going to get as a as a species into quite heated debates around whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. Um and there will be those that are evangelical about it, and I suppose to a degree I'd put myself on the fringes of that camp because really on a, a pragmatic level, this is gonna happen. You know. Uh, Again, probably around the notion of efficiencies, the centralization of data is Mm -hmm. gonna happen. Mm -hmm. I think the reason we're working, wanting to work with convergence tech is in in the digital micro-credential landscape, you've really got two concepts. One is single sovereign identity, and the other one is more of a marketplace concept. So some of the other micro-credential providers that have been around for a decade or more Use a marketplace concept, so it's largely your digital credential wallet is is cloud based, and it's shareable across different areas. And there are some concerns about longer term. Does that put you into a subscription landscape to right. get your own data? Of course, it does. Does that mean, does that, mean that you you know can or, or or might have your data shared with those that you've got no eyes on? And that's why you know. Convergence are really tied in with things like the uh, GDPR in Europe and, and really thinking quite heavily about single sovereign identity. So the digital wallet is yours. It's Chris Colbert's. No one else can have that. Not even Convergence have access to that. You've got that. And basically, it's up to you to figure out if you want to populate some of that digital credentialing into a marketplace environment because why would you want to go into a marketplace because obviously more and more platforms are evolving you know not dissimilar to linkedin if i've got a range of micro credentials i could chuck them into linkedin people can see that they go hey i think you've got a really good fit for this job that we've got coming up so you create environments where there's potential for new opportunities obviously i think the other side of this the other side of the coin is the dark side of the coin and the, the manipulation of individuals and And the idea that you might be be, um, using people's data to create or construct other identities that are used in erroneous, you know, ways. But, you know, the idea, if if you've looked into blockchain, is that, you know, this is unhackable data environments. Now, will it remain so in the longer term? Inevitably, we're we're quite canny as a species. So (laughs) someone's probably going to find a way of picking way through it but um, I think we'll also again find other ways of creating more security but the reality is it's going to happen. You know Estonia, Malta have already moved pretty much everything about a person's life into a digital landscape.
2: Right.
0: Ministry of Ontario, Ministry of Education in Nova Scotia and Canada they're playing with it, the Australian federal government's looking quite heavily into how to
2: create. Singapore.
0: Life- Singapore with the track and trace through the pandemic have been working with Convergence Tech uh, to build that mm-hmm. uh, track and trace environment. Um, and yeah, I think they they will move into to that space too. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know, you know, Convergence are working with the Australian Customs and Excise to look at basically tracking the data from manufacture of, I think they're looking at Liquor, so whiskey industries and you know spirit industries, looking at point of origin, and being able to track every way
2: single
0: yeah. uh, transactional uh, interaction right the way through to point of sale as a way of trying to basically, I think, tighten up on where money's being lost that's right. not going into the public purse,
1: right? Um, leakage, leakage in the system or something, right? Yeah,
0: basically, not through people. gaming but just through bureaucratic inefficiencies so you know I think these things are happening and I think young people need to have a wallet and as you said can you feed this into your future life obviously you know I don't know about you but I've got a a folder over there with a whole stack of certificates and qualifications and you have every time I move to a new country I have to get them notarized and uh, it's just a it's just a yeah. massive headache.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's an efficiency play, but there's also you and I were talking the other day about that that stat that you shared. You know, the average admissions person looks at a looks at an application for five minutes, and then I was talking to a friend of mine today, who um, an HBS guy when I was at Harvard Harvard Business School um, at the Innovation Lab, we were talking about the very same thing, which is this this question of how do you assess. How do you assess a human being? Whether the human being is a is a, is a, is a student in a in a you know ninth grade class or a, a high school graduate applying to a university or an adult applying to a job, what is the best way to understand the full, the the full truth, if you will? The capacity, the orientation, the behavior set, the mindsets, the like. And, and the fact is the tools that we have used in education particularly are are not the right tools or the assessments are are, are so one-dimensional in a way. But then, so I, I guess my point in all of that is the progress being made here is is essential for us to be able to really understand one another. You know, I mean, I think at the, the sort of, most human version of all this is how well do we understand one another and understand where each of us is in our in our journey, and and is that is that like too melodramatic a way of thinking about it, or wrongheaded, or? Unsettled? Well, I
0: don't I don't think so. Look, no, I think everything we devise to create a shop window for ourselves for others to make an assessment, as you called it, about our fitness for for whatever it may be. Maybe it's moving into the next step of one's own learning. Maybe it's moving into a new career. Maybe it's, you know, trying to get a loan.
1: <laughs> all of Mar- it's about... Marriage.
0: <laughs> yeah. Oh, gosh. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> micro credentials for that. Uh, you know, I guess the, the thing that we haven't really explored, I mean, that's all there. And all you can ever do is get the best steer you can. And I think we do we do need to make a more sophisticated model to enable us to give more authentic pictures of each other to each other moving forward, and particularly for young people. And, and I guess for me, in this whole chat, that's the thing that we really haven't brought into the centre of this, is, is young people. Yeah. You know, we, we live in an era in which we are basically telling them, almost from the day they're born, that we're all going to hell on a handcart and it's our responsibility to try and stop that, but it's also our responsibility that we are going on, on that anchor. And it's a massively overwhelming burden to place on young people.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and we've got a compulsory education system that evolved in many cases, I think probably the first example of industrial education was probably the Prussian model in the early 19th century, rapidly adopted by the English speaking countries by the mid 19th century. Um, And it hasn't really fundamentally changed that much. It's still skewed heavily towards academics. And of course, to live a rich and fulfilling life, the richness of academic knowledge is never going to go away and we wouldn't want it to because that's really a big part of that knowledge repository and the transition of that knowledge from Mm -hmm. one generation to the next is, is the richness of what we are. But it's also, there's also a lot power dynamics in there that, that put people in certain places and don't allow right. them to grow and thrive.
2: Right, And I think right.
0: I think young people are seeing that uh, and they're seeing that it's not enough. We're not giving them enough of a set of tools to understand themselves first and foremost, but also to share their understanding of themselves with other people so other people can see them for what they are. Uh, and, I, and- Can I, I just like hold you
1: there, there? Yeah. I, I just want the audience to just sit with what Kevin just said for a couple of seconds because i think it's so profoundly true and I, I said to a friend of mine the other day you know the young people are onto us <laughs> the young people yeah. see what you just said they see the voids in the system they see the the limitations they see they 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 see a system that was built by the prussians in 1865 <laughs> you know like yeah. they're onto us so Keep going.
0: Well, you know, and, and I, I forget the name is a Cambridge academic in the early nineteenth century who basically cooked up the concept. I mean, the Chinese have been using examinations for four thousand years, but definitely in, in the West, he cooked up examining students as a as an efficiency to just do his sifting,
1: mm-hmm. and
0: from that, kind of exploded this whole regime that. Now seems immovable. It seems immutable. Mm. It almost seems innate that mm. we would use it, but of course it isn't. It's a mm-hmm. human invention, and it's a relatively recent one. And the problem is, we're seeing particularly throughout and post-pandemic, and but we were seeing it in the decade before. And people point at different things, whether it's you know the iPhone and, and smartphones, and the, the reality is there are many many things complex things going back to what we opened with this idea of complex systems, there's many different drivers as to why the levels of well-being are diminishing and the levels of anxiety and mental illness are accelerating. But mm. I would say authentically that the regimes we've created in high school and the pressures around access, the, the lack of diversity, the lack of inclusion are exacerbating all of that. And we need to create more authentic ways for young people to engage with themselves with their communities and with understanding their future and that's absolutely essential and for me working in the private sector and this comes back to this tension between public and private education the drivers and the, the purpose of education in those contexts having overlaps but also being very different i think For me, it's almost a moral obligation that private education needs to innovate, not be the most conservative, Mm. right? I mean, I was listening to one of our alumni from a Dulwich College, right? So one of our brands is Dulwich College International, very well-established, well-regarded group of schools. They run a version of English national curriculum, uh, relatively benchmark curriculum environment. Uh, leading into IB Diploma, often looked at as a kind of blue-ribboned pre-tertiary global qualification. The average scores there are around about 40 points, which for those of you who know IB, that's pretty, that's up there in the top sort of 5% as a group of schools, really, globally. And we had a student speaking on, on a Women's Day event that we had a couple of days ago, and she's now in a tech startup in Beijing. She graduated from Dulwich College about 10 years ago. She basically did everything that was expected of her, right? Mm -hmm. In China, she's probably a single child. The family effectively put all of their funds in to to, to get her on the right path. And the right path in that kind of environment is you go to an Ivy League or Oxbridge. As it happens, she went to Cambridge. So she went from Dulwich, got a place at Cambridge, from Cambridge, she did, I think, economics. She worked for one of the massive global financial institutions. She lasted six months.
2: She so lasted six months?
0: And she said, it just wasn't for me. Wow. So here's a system where you're doing everything right. Your parents, let's face it, from kindergarten through to graduation and university, they're spending you know, a million US dollars on you Right. And they get you somewhere and you go, this this isn't what it's about. But we're doing it time and time yeah. and time again.
1: Yeah. Well, that actually, I, I'm mindful of the time and I pr- promised to get you out of here in the hour and I didn't do that. Um. I'd love to, one of the things I try to do on every show is ask my guests to share one or two things the audience could, should do to apply the wisdom and sometimes it's read a read a particular book and other times it's more action oriented and my my question is around what can what can parents do sort of understanding call it the dimensionalization of assessment the dimensionalization of curriculum you know that the the industry is slowly moving towards a recognition that the world is really complicated and how we how we, how we, how we help our, our kids get ready for that world, uh, is necessarily more, um, more dimensional. So like, if I know if if I'm on the call or if I'm listening to this, is there anything I can do as a parent? And maybe not, maybe the answer is not, You know, just be aware, but you have it, you have a daughter, right? Like, how do you think about, does she come home with grades? Like, like,
2: (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah, you, look. Uh, thanks for saving the hard
2: questions. <laughs> yeah.
1: I mean well, I mean the answer may be nothing right now because much of the system is still the old system, but um yeah, you know, just be just being aware. Um
0: yeah, look, I spend most of my time in you know education futures, but the reality is my kids both go to a pretty traditional school, uh, very much based around grade-based outcomes. Um, Why? Is it because I'm wedded to that? No, it's partly to do with where we are in the world and what's available Mm -hmm. um, at this point in time. Mm -hmm. But as a parent, of course, you are talking about the dearest things in your life, uh, the things you probably love and cherish more than anything else, and you mm. want to do what you think is best by them, and I think that's about trying to give them a great start. And and I think you know the the dominant narrative in discourse in, in basically the education business is that if you know that example I used with the student in Beijing, those parents through love, did all the right things. And the young person got into the career and went, actually, no, this isn't right. So I think, what do you learn from that? Whatever we, the best laid plans, right? That our kids are not going to follow mm-hmm. them.
2: <laughs> well, I mean, not.
0: yeah. and we've, we've, or, or even if they do, are we sure we know them well enough, and they know themselves well enough to know whether they're happy?
1: That that and, is, I think that is the to do, which is to for all of us as parents, myself included. Even though my kids are in their late twenties, there's still an ongoing assessment by me of how well they're doing, and making sure as parents that we're putting that assessment question through this multi-dimensional filter versus. In the case of you know the the Beijing family, potentially looking at grades as the assessment both of competency of knowledge being gained and even potentially of their child's happiness. Yeah. Like I think that's the, the to do. I guess is for me is resetting how I think about how well my child is doing.
0: And look, a friend of mine put it this way: um, one of the hardest things as a parent. Um, is moving from the narrative of, you'll do this, you'll do that. Which of course, when your kids are young, you're doing that all the time. Right. Go here, sit there, have this, you know. um, And moving from that to stepping back, watching them make mistakes, almost welcoming them making mistakes because you have to as a human being, Mm -hmm. and being there for them, and Mm -hmm. not stepping over and going, no, don't do that because this is going to happen. And being able to stand back and go, okay, you know, I I now have to be a coach, a guide, a mentor. And part of the pain of doing that authentically is watching your kids get stuff wrong. Uh, But just knowing that you're there for them and being reflective enough to be there for them without going, well, I could have told you that was going to happen. I think as parents we still get stuck in that mm. loop that we're in when they're young kids, where we go, you can't do this and you because this will happen. And then when they become young adults, we still kind of fall into those patterns and behaviours that we've had. So I suppose, mm. yeah, the message really, as a parent, be as reflective as you can, and particularly when they become young people, that transition from 14 and above, where they really are starting to figure out who they are figure out who you are as a parent in that space and how do you help them thrive? And thrive doesn't necessarily mean the narrow benchmarks around grades and scores and the very narrow metrics of success. Thrive is around how do you flourish? How do you help them flourish? Uh, And and, and on a selfish level, help them understand you Mm
2: -hmm. and help
0: them transition from seeing you as a parent to seeing you as a friend, to seeing Mm -hmm. you as a peer. That's a difficult journey. And I think there's plenty in there for parents to do without just, you know, it's easy to fixate on the narrow bits around education and not look at the other stuff because the other stuff's
1: complicated. Yeah, agreed. I think we all need to get out of the box is what you're saying. So Kevin, thank you for joining me today and for all the wisdom. And I I really, you know, I I count myself very lucky to have gotten to know you over the last few months. And um, you've been additive to my life and I look forward to many more conversations and uh, thank you so much.
0: Sure, for sure. Always a pleasure. Love, love our catch-ups and thanks for the opportunity. And uh, I hope there's some value in there for some people. There absolutely
1: is. And
0: please, yeah, encourage people to reach out, find me on LinkedIn, Twitter, whatever, and get in touch.
1: Great. Thank you. Thanks for listening today. Wherever you are as a leader on your transformation journey, you'll find more helpful resources at chriscolbert.com. From more podcast episodes and my film talks from around the globe to my blog and books. And if you're a CEO or leader interested in getting my advice, you can reach me there too. Just head over to chriscolbert.com. Thanks for listening.